college, one of my favorite classes turned out to be educational psychology. And oddly enough, that class was at 7 a.m. in the morning. So I had to have really liked it to enjoy that hour. And it was a two-hour class. Uh, I could go on. But in this class, we spent time diving deep into theories of teaching and learning. And I became fascinated with how one creates the environment for learning through healthy teaching and classroom management, taking into account all of the learning styles that are out there. I'm doing this right now, right? There's a lot of different learning styles that are out there. The unit on classroom discipline caught my attention, though, as I had never thought about all the tools a teacher, a professor, an instructor, a Christian educator, would need to keep the focus of the class on the most important parts of that class to learn. Now, all of you who are teachers, have been teachers or will be teachers, probably have so much more to say on this matter. What's worked for you, what has not worked for you, what you wish you had known when you first started, what you wish you would know right now before you even get started. But in the process of thinking through this, and of going to elementary schools to observe as a part of this class, it brought up instances of bad classroom management or discipline I experienced over my elementary, junior high, and high school years. One of those, and I'm putting this in quotes, one of those traumatic management methods for me is known as collective punishment. Some of you are already lying. You know you experienced it. Collective punishment, of course, is when a whole group of students, a whole class, for example, is punished for the actions of maybe one person or just a few. Now, in my world, this meant losing play period because one boy could not keep his mouth shut. And I found myself trying to keep that guy quiet. So that's where the trauma came in, is that I've spent so many of my life to don't do that. <laughs> Collective punishment. Now, no matter what kind of discipline is exacted on us, none of us would admit that we like getting disciplined. I don't think I've, well, I, I know. I have never run into anybody that I really love getting disciplined. Today, as we consider our series on the greater series and the study of Hebrews, we're going to focus on the key word of discipline. And in this passage we're going to study today, it's mentioned eight times. So it's a very important part of the passage. And though these words may be hard to hear, and though they were hard for me to think through for the last however many days, the writer will remind us of how God has a greater and more redeeming meaning to help us journey with a deeper and more enduring faith. So if you would, if you brought your Bibles or you want to open up to your bulletin, the scripture is listed there, Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to start with verse 3. It says this, Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children. My child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines those 
whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? If you do not have that discipline in which all children share, then you are illegitimate and not his children. Moreover, we had human parents to discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not be even more willing to be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined for us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share his holiness. Now discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The word of the Lord. I've entitled this sermon, For Our Good. And so our one thing this morning that we want to have at the core is that God disciplines us for our good. With that in mind today, we're going to discover at least three steps for our good. One, consider Jesus. Two, embrace discipline. And three, make straight paths. Let's look at verses three to four. It says, consider Jesus. Now, in the Greek here, the focus was on an athlete, actually, a single-minded runner, one who wants to run their best time and win. I'm going to be following the Olympics. We're going to see a lot of people with a single mind, a purpose. They have trained for a long time to achieve that. Consider here is that kind of focus that we want to zero in. It's not just a passing, but a focus. And literally, it is defined as to attentively observe and analyze every part of conduct that we see. Now, I was thinking about this, and I thought, that's one of those moments where, you know, you're kind of rolling through life, and somebody says something, or you see something, and you just stop for a moment. You go, hmm, that to me is considering. Because you divert your previous focus to a new one. And why consider Jesus? Well, we are reminded that he answers the question on why faith is so difficult. He endured hostility against himself from sinners. And we consider that so, why, so that what? We don't grow weary or lose heart. Our faith can be eroded. It's sometimes easy to look at faith as a kind of a continue upward trajectory. But we know that any number of life circumstances or a crisis of faith in one way or another can wear on us. Faith can be eroded. And the, the Greek used in this was, was described by Aristotle as like the athlete 
who flings themselves on the ground in collapse after surging past the finish line. That was the don't lose heart, don't get weary. But that, you know, after the race is done, okay, time to lose heart, time to be weary. I made it to the finish line. But as we read this verse, we realize we are not yet at the finish line. And the writer of Hebrews is calling us, don't fall down, don't collapse, don't lose heart, don't become weary. We could stop right here. This, this could be a sermon in and of itself, just right here. But the writer has more. He reminds the hearer that, well, in your struggle against sin, that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In verse 4. And of course, the author here is comparing or actually contrasting their present experience to that of Jesus who did indeed shed his blood. Scottish theologian James Moffat says here, the writer seems to be shaming them, not blaming them. They've not yet experienced this, and so it's not the writer's intent to blame them for not going out to find that experience, but that they also should know what their suffering really means as to what they have defined it to that point. And though we have all been tested to various degrees in the church of the U.S., we too have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. I remember a story uh, years ago. Some of you have heard this before. Our Bishop Matt Thomas at that time was at General Conference and was standing in the back of the room. There were hundreds that were there that night in the ballroom in Orlando listening to a speaker. And he said a couple of leaders were standing around him from a big country in Asia. And they said, Bishop, how many of the pastors, have all of the pastors who've come here uh, been persecuted in their churches and, and were they persecuted even trying to come here? And I remember Bishop Matt saying it kind of took him back for a moment. And he leaned over and he said, actually, nobody has been, had their life threatened or been persecuted to come to the pulpit of their church or to be at this event that night. The, remind, the writer reminds us to consider Jesus as we should expect our days of faith in God and pushing back against the darkness, as Chandra reminded us last week, to not get better, but to experience even more hostility. We should expect that hostility will increase. So I really feel the Spirit was saying to me and, and to us in general, let's not spend a lot of time complaining about freedoms that are taken away as Christ's followers but rather let's consider Jesus so that we don't grow weary and lose heart. We're not promised a safe and comfortable life if we are following Jesus. Consider Jesus. Second step is in verses 5 to 11 where it says embrace discipline. The writer tells them they have forgotten the exhortation that addresses them as children. And these words come from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 to 12, where it says, My child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished by him. 
For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Now, lightly, of course, is defined as being indifferent. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't be indifferent and say, well, who cares about discipline? Or lose heart being overwhelmed by discipline. The discipline of the Lord is to be taken seriously so that we can be lifelong learners in our faith. The discipline of the Lord is not meant to be overwhelming, but to be received knowing that Jesus will give us what is appropriate and just, and it will be for our good, as we'll talk about in a moment. Another reason we should embrace discipline, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. We get disciplined because we're loved. Well, that's a new twist. I'm not sure any, there have been very few moments in my life when I've been disciplined and I thought, the first thing that I thought was, they love me. <laughs> but also you should know that the Greek here for discipline means training. Ah, that sounds a little bit better. So then we look at God as a coach. Now, God is way more. I don't want to just narrow it down that God's our coach. But he is that in the life of discipline. And I know we have coaches among us, and I know we have those who are being coached or have been, and you know as a coach or being coached that you are pushed hard. And there are times when you're disciplined and you have had to receive words about your performance that you didn't want to hear, or you've had to give words about somebody else's performance. But verse, uh, in, in verse 7, it talks about this because this is a part of enduring trials that come from our obedience. And so we learn, we are trained as the, the times we have in these trials, we learn more about the next time when we face one. Discipline in our lives should be a part of our character. God is treating us as children. And in the context of the Roman culture, those who heard these words, this was, this was something that they grabbed onto right away because Roman fathers had absolute power and were not or ever to be questioned. So verse 8 reminds them that you can't be true children if you're not disciplined. It is a privilege of being in the family. And then verse 9 pulls from Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 to 20, which calls to obey God and choose life. And we know that as we respected our parents, should we not much more respect our perfect God? And in doing so, we choose life. Now, all of these verses up until verse 10 have set it up. Parents disciplined us for a short time, but God disciplines us perfectly for our good, in order that we may share his holiness so that we can become holy as he is. I don't know how many of you heard the words from your parents or you've said the words as parents, but this is for your good. I thought about that. Like, oh, I, didn't, I don't think I realized that was biblical when uh, that was being said to me as a kid. It's for your own good, Dougie. But it is. It is. 
And we know that we, while we are imperfect as parents or uh, what we receive from parents, we know that at some level we want that discipline to be for good. And that's what God wants for us as well. And as we know, sometimes too well are hard times where we must make difficult and just decisions often help us to enter into more faith and trust in God, and that can be good. God can and will use any painful experience. He will redeem the time. And in our effort to explain a painful experience, we can easily fail to see how God takes those trials and turns them into powerful takeaways. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 makes plain the feeling of discipline. And at the time it is being given, notice that the writer says always. The writer got it, that always it's painful, not pleasant. But yet this discipline is for our good as it brings about the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We have a peace because we start living in the right way. Embrace discipline. Finally, we get to make straight paths. Look at verses 12 to 13. There's that big word right there that says, therefore. And again, I almost feel like the writer, when I, was, I read that, this passage over and over, and I get to that, and I almost feel like the, whoever was reading it to me was, therefore, everybody take a breath. We just said some hard things. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Now, in Jewish literature, drooping hands and weak knees was familiar imagery that everybody knew about. They associated it with discouragement and despair. That's how discouragement and despair was described. And the hearers of these words understood this already without explanation when they read this. And this takes us back to the athlete. Of course, if one's hands are drooping and their knees are weak, the level of fitness reduces their capacity to finish the long obedience in God's direction. We're told to make a straight path so that what is lame or halting will be healed. And here the writer is referencing a passage in Isaiah chapter 35. And as I read that entire passage, I could think of no better way to end this sermon than for us to hear these incredible words of encouragement and hope. So I ask that as I read these, these final words, as Isaiah closes this sermon, that we would rest in them and that this would cause us to more deeply consider Jesus to embrace the times when we're called out by God, where we're disciplined by others who are speaking truth into our lives and that we would make straight paths. So let's take a posture of listening. I'm, as I'm reading, I'm going to be listening to these are words that are coming right back to me as well. But hear these words from Isaiah. He says this, strengthen the weak hands and support the unsteady knees. Say to those who are panicking, be strong, don't fear. Here's your God coming with vengeance, with divine retribution. 
God will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be cleared. Then the lame will leap like the deer and the tongue of the speechless will sing. Waters will spring up in the desert and streams in the wilderness. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground fountains of water. The jackal's habitat, a pasture. Grass will become reeds and rushes. A highway will be there. It will be called the holy way. The unclean won't travel on it, but it will be for those walking on that way. Even fools won't get lost on it. No lion will be there. No predator will go up on it. None of these will be there. Only the redeemed will walk on it. The Lord's ransomed ones will return and enter Zion with singing and with everlasting joy upon their heads. Happiness and joy will overwhelm them. Grief and groaning will flee away. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.